Thank you, Eliakim, for your murder. And thank you, Eliakim, for your prayer. Guy Fawkes Day is one month away. I thank God that in the history of England, that event is still celebrated 400 years later, and that those Catholic conspirators were searched out, found, put on the rack, pulled apart, drawn and quartered, and hung on public display in Mother England. And she's the mother of us all in certain respects by sending the gospel throughout the world when the sun never set on the British Empire. Alice was a wonderful sister to have. Thank you for telling us about her, Chris. Thank you for your prayer, Joshua. I don't know how to preach to such men. But I'll try. Let's open the word of God. Our King James, the first of England Bible, to Isaiah chapter 22. Thank you, blessed God, for moving. King James VI of Scotland and the first of England to order a new translation of the scriptures in the English language that we all hold in our hands. Though he knew less than 10% of what we know of the book he ordered to be translated. Some of you rejoiced when I told you that I was going to preach through the book of Isaiah. I hope that you will still maintain your desire for that effort as we come to chapters like Isaiah 22. Now, I love Isaiah 22 and its history and its practical lesson for us. And I hope that you will as well. I fear that people who love the book of Isaiah may know four to seven chapters in it that are special to them because they have a few special verses in them out of the 1,292 verses in the book of Isaiah and out of its 66 chapters. Because when a book has 66 chapters and you like seven of them, that means there's 59 that you may not. So, but let's make a choice today that we're going to love Isaiah 22. And I am not going to take very long because I want to take long on 23. And that comes after the break. So let's just get through 22. I, I don't mean it disrespectfully at all. Let's just move through it and gather its lessons and trust the Lord. Every word of God is pure. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. We together have wasted so many hours learning history without any wisdom attached to it. We have spent so many hours in class having to regurgitate facts that are irrelevant to our lives and will never assist us in any way, shape, or form and without seeing the mighty hand of God behind all those events, all those dates, all those kings, and all the effects of those enormous conflicts that took place in the world, some of which are in 22 and some of which are in 23. I have warned you that if you do not like the Assyrian Empire and Sennacherib and his father Sargon or his son Esarhaddon or Shalmaneser or Asher-Banipal, the kings of Assyria, then you're not going to like great chunks of Isaiah because Isaiah lived during the time of Sennacherib, 
the king of the Assyrian Empire, and his father Sargon. And he, that is God, inspired a number of chapters about Shalmaneser, Sargon, Sennacherib, and the besieging of Jerusalem, the lifting of that siege, and the ruin of his army, and the coming of Terhaka the Ethiopian. The Lord did that. And there's many chapters about it, because the Lord loves the story. The Lord loves telling you the details three times. Do you all realize that the story of Hezekiah and Sennacherib is in the Bible three times? Most stories are in the Bible once. A few are in the Bible twice. This story is in the Bible three times. And though we've already dealt with it, and though we're going to deal with it right now, in a few chapters, we have it in detail. Chapters 36, 37, 38, 39 are lengthy, detailed histories of Sennacherib, Hezekiah, and the ruin of the Assyrian army. Chapter 22. It has 25 verses. We have a lot of ground to cover. It is the folly of Judah, even under threat of Assyria. And then, a personal story. A great difference in character of two princes. So, the chapter is going to be divided at verse 15. Verses 15 through 25, 11 verses, are going to be the story of two men. And so it'll be a practical lesson for us. And for the first 19 verses, it's going to be another angle on Judah's attitude as Sennacherib marched his Assyrian army across the Euphrates and Tigris into Palestine and approach Jerusalem. And that's what we cover first. I showed you a little outline, and let me just say these words to you. They may or may not help. As you look at all these 25 verses, the first four describe the fearful situation in Jerusalem. The next three, five through seven, the foreign armies approaching Jerusalem. Verses eight through 11, the foolish trust in Jerusalem's preparations. Verses 12 through 14, the fatalistic choice of pleasure on the part of some in the city of Jerusalem. So let me read to you the first four verses. The burden of the valley of vision. What aileth thee now, that thou art wholly gone up to the housetops? Thou that art full of stirs, a tumultuous city, a joyous city. Thy slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. All thy rulers are fled together. They are bound by the archers. All that are found in thee are bound together, which have fled from far. Therefore said I, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Labor not to comfort me because of the spoiling of the daughter of my people. Amen and amen. The first lesson, the fearful situation in Jerusalem. It's called the burden of the valley of vision. That is Jerusalem. We know it's Jerusalem by reading the chapter. So because in verse 10, and ye have numbered the houses of Jerusalem. Verse 9, ye have seen also the breaches of the city of David. It is the burden of Jerusalem. Don't worry about the words. And I don't want to spend a long time telling you that they fit. It's like chapter 21 that we ended with last Lord's Day. The burden of the desert of the sea. What is the desert of the sea? 
Babylon. What is the valley of vision? Jerusalem. You say, how is it a valley? Well, Jerusalem, even though being on Mount Moriah and Mount Zion and five other hills, were lower than the hills around it. So it's called a valley in that sense. The city went up and down from one hilltop to another, so it's called a valley. The nation right now is morally depressed, so it can be called a valley. And why is it called a city of vision? Because that's where God's temple was, and that's where men went to inquire of the Lord. Because God's prophets were there, and that's where God's visions were for their lives and for the nation. So it's the valley of vision. If you need more than that, then consult the outline. You should know by the context that we force similitudes to equal the context. We do not let words that we don't understand determine the context. The context determines the words that we don't understand. And yet, we can look at this, and we can look at other verses in the Bible, which I have in the outline, that I'm not going to turn you to, because it is a distraction and a waste of time, that the valley of vision is Jerusalem. The burden of Jerusalem, or the valley of vision, and the Lord mocks Jerusalem. What aileth thee now? What's going on? What's the problem there? What aileth thee? Why is Jerusalem acting like an Epicurean, acting like a fatalist? What aileth thee now? Something's changed in this city. This city has been known for being full of stirring activity. I'm in verse 2 at the moment. This city's been known for being full of stirring activity, a tumultuous city of excitement and noise, a joyful city because of commerce and business and success and joy and marriage and families. What's happening now that everybody's running up to their housetops and the streets are empty? Because the housetops is where people went to get a better view of what was coming toward Jerusalem or to see what was going on in the, in the streets of their city or to beg for God and to mourn. That was the place they went, and there are Bible verses that tell us that. And so there's been a great change in the character and the attitude and the spirit of the city of Jerusalem. It had been a very prosperous and joyful city in the first half of verse 2. And now the Lord asks, what aileth thee? What's wrong? What's the problem? Why are you all running up to your housetops? Instead of being in the street transacting business and asking your, men, asking your friends when they're going to get off work so that you can go celebrate with them. What's happened? He knows what's happened. There's an army known for its cruelty that is coming. For those of you that took the time to, look, to, re, to learn real history, in the links that I sent you last week, and if you were to look at the relief that was carved in the walls of a room that Sennacherib had in his palace in Nineveh, 80 feet long, that detailed his siege of the Philistine city of Lachish, which Judah owned at times, you will have seen the cruelty of the Assyrians. If you, if you looked at it. Right. You know, they would stretch men out and flay them. They would scrape all the skin off them while they were alive. They'd stick them on poles and put them outside the gate of the city. They'd cut off bodily parts easily, anytime they felt like it, because they were known for cruelty, and they won the whole world in terror at the cruelty of the Assyrian Empire. And so the Syrian Empire is coming into Palestine, and it's got a campaign going that it's going to clean up this whole part of the world, and there's a problem. The problem is Hezekiah stopped paying tribute that his father Ahaz paid. That's a problem. 
And so here comes the Assyrian army. And so there's a change. Thy slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. You know, if you're going to die in if you're going to die in a war, at least die fighting. At least die with your hand cramped up because you've held your sword and put it through so many enemy before they put one through you. At least die that way. But the Lord mocks them in verse 2 by saying, "Thy slain men are not slain with the sword. They're dying of starvation, they're dying of fear, they're dying of suicide, they're dying by being shot in the back by arrows because they're running. Everyone is fearful. What's happened to this joyful city of mine? And so the mockery in verses 1 and 2. Verse 3, all thy rulers are fled together. The rulers of 46 fenced cities. When the Bible says that Sennacherib took the fenced cities of Judah, the fenced cities does not mean that it had a 36-inch or 42-inch chain-link fence. It means that it was walled up and could withstand an attack. And Sennacherib admits that he had to use his engines of war and embankments against those 46 walled cities. In the Bible, fenced cities. But understand the terminology. It's not a chain-link fence to keep your poodle in. Thankfully. All thy rulers are fled together. The men responsible for holding those cities and defending them as a defense to protect Jerusalem. All around Jerusalem were these walled cities. And the, the, the rulers have fled. They've all run away. And guess where they are? They're all in Jerusalem. And they want archers around them who can reach out and touch you at a distance. And so they're bound together with the archers. They don't want to be anywhere but with their buddies, the rulers of other cities. You know, there's always comfort in numbers. But let me have some Eliakims that will stand and, and be faithful in their houses alone right. as the leaders of their families. And so look at these. All thy rulers are fled together. This isn't Hezekiah. They are bound by the archers. They're together and tied up with the archers. They don't want anything to happen to them, so they've got those that can reach out and protect them. All that are found in thee are bound together, which have fled from far, that is, from other cities. And so the rulers of the other cities, the defense of the nation is breaking down, and they're in Jerusalem as the Assyrian army approaches. That's what these verses are teaching, the fearfulness of the situation in Jerusalem. And so Isaiah says in verse 4, Therefore said I, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Don't even try to comfort me. I'm inconsolable right now because of the spoiling of the daughter of my people. Second lesson. The foreign armies approaching, verses 5 through 7. For it is a day of trouble and of treading down and of perplexity. This is Isaiah describing the scene and scenario in Jerusalem. It is a day of trouble and of treading down and of perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and of crying to the mountains. And Elam bare the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen, and Kerr uncovered the shields. And it shall come to pass that thy choicest valleys shall be full of chariots and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate of Jerusalem. 
the Valley of Vision, the city of Jerusalem, the foreign armies approaching. And so we have it described to us. We have so many different angles on Sennacherib, his army, Jerusalem, and their defenses in the book of Isaiah and in Kings and Chronicles. And this is a different one of looking at the spirit of the people inside and what their attitude was and their response to an approaching army. You know, men respond differently to trouble. Men respond differently to danger. And we want to be faithful men that respond by turning to God. Amen. We never want to turn to men right. when we're fearful or in danger. And our, and our fear or our danger can result from business transactions, can result from health dilemmas or situations that we get ourselves in, from sicknesses or disease. All kinds of things can happen. We always want to turn to the Lord, and the Lord's going to show us that His people, His church, crumbled when an army approached. And we don't want to crumble. We don't know what army's going to approach. Some of you already have small armies approaching in your lives, and we want to be ready and respond the proper way. So the foreign armies approaching, verses 5 through 7, it's a day of trouble, because war is trouble. It's the grievousness of war that we learned last Lord's Day, and of treading down. The 46 cities were tread down. He took those cities. He tread down the vineyards. Remember the verses that we covered in chapters 7 and 8, how the vineyards would be all messed up, and the produce, and the barns, and the farm, and the animals, and it would be just a wreck. The nation would be a wreck. Because an army... Listen, there's, one, there's, there's multiple ways an army can destroy a nation. An army can destroy a nation in actual combat by killing its best men, its young men. Or an army can occupy a nation and consume it and trample on everything of value. When an army takes over a farmhouse, do you think they care at all about the little features of that farmhouse that made that wife and mother happy? It doesn't even cross their minds. They relieve themselves wherever they feel like it. Right. They trample on everything. They consume anything they can get their hands on. They'll destroy anything. I'm trying to give you the picture of these words. It is a day of trouble and of treading down of the whole of Judah, because all that was left was Jerusalem, and of perplexity. They did not know what to do. How can we fight so great an army? Listen, when God wants to judge and chasten His people, look what He can do to you. He can give you trouble, and He can tread down everything that you delight in, and He can give you perplexity so that you do not know how to deal with it. You or me. Therefore, we better be Eliakims and not Shebnas. Breaking down the walls of those walled cities and of crying to the mountains. The people were crying so loud it rang off the mountains like the Bible tells us it could in Jerusalem by ringing off the surrounding mountains. They're just crying out in grief of their perplexity and of having everything they counted dear being tread down and the day of trouble having arrived. Elam are the Persians. Ker are the Medes. Two different words. I've already explained Elam to you from chapter 21 and verse 2 and Ker is used the same way for the Medes. You say, but the, the, the Persians and the Medes, what are they doing here? It's the Assyrian Empire, brethren. Right. We have a whole string of verses that say the Assyrian Empire will bring nations. So these are just two of them and two of their principal ones. This is Sennacherib. This is Jerusalem. Because that's when Eliakim and Shebna 
were princes under Hezekiah from Kings and Chronicles. It's all easy to figure out if we'll compare the whole Bible. But these were two of the many nations that made up the Assyrian Empire. We don't really know empires today. We know the European Union. And it has 10, 12, 14, 18, depending on who's happy with whom at whatever time in, in it. And it's the European Union. But it's a whole bunch of nations. Enough. Elam, the Persians, were good with archery and chariots of men and horsemen. And here they are. And Kerr uncovered the shield, defensive weapons, offensive weapons. It shall come to pass that thy choicest valley shall be full of chariots. Do you know what a chariot with a couple of horses in front of it pulling it would do to your herb garden? Your tomatoes, since I heard you, Charlie. Do you know what a chariot with a couple... Let's get four horses, two pairs, in front of a chariot through your herb garden or through your tomato patch. It messed things up. That fine lawn of yours would be torn to shreds. Those of you that have a fine lawn. And the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. This is beautiful. Do, do you know where this fits? The horsemen are going to be assembled at the gate of Jerusalem. And Rabshakeh is going to come out and say, well, he says a lot of things that I won't say right now. But he said a lot of things and he said, I've got 2,000 horses. If you can give me deposit on them, do you have 2,000 men that can ride them? And we'll settle it that way. Because guess what he knew? They didn't have 2,000 men that could even ride horses. Right. And here they are at the gate. It's the approaching army. I hope you can see it clearly and that you don't have a question about anything. I want you to understand it. I want us to tie up the Bible as we learn the book of Isaiah. It is going to pull so many things together. Tyre and Sidon. Do you know that Jesus only lived 35 miles from Sidon and 40 miles from Tyre? He lived 80 from Jerusalem. Do you know that he went to Tyre and Sidon? Do you know that Tyre and Sidon came to hear him? We want to learn things. Right. And the Lord wants us to know what he can do to his church when his church doesn't obey him and the faults that that church had when the army approached. Verses 8 through 11. And he discovered the covering of Judah. And thou didst look in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. Ye have seen also the breaches of the city of David, that they are many. And ye gathered together the waters of the lower pool. And ye have numbered the houses of Jerusalem. And the houses have ye broken down to fortify the wall. Ye made also a ditch between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But ye have not looked unto the maker thereof, neither had respect unto him that fashioned it long ago. There was a designer of the city of Jerusalem. And that city was beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth. But it had a designer. And they didn't look to the designer. And who was the designer of Jerusalem? Almighty God. Amen. Who did he have in that city, first of all, that we know about? Melchizedek. Oh, yes. And then the Jebusites. And when David approached with all of his successes outside the walls of that citadel, the stronghold of Zion, as it became called, when David approached with his army in Joab, what did the Jebusites say from the wall? 
unless you can take away the lame and the blind, there's no way you're getting into this city. We have put the lame and the blind on the walls of Jerusalem because you can't get close to it. We can defend it with lame and blind. That's what a stronghold it was. But they didn't go to the one that had designed the city and created it. Almighty God. We should go to Him for everything. Amen. Look at all these practical things they're worried about. Let me quickly cover them with you. He discovered the covering of Judah. What's the covering of Judah? The walled cities throughout it. Sennacherib discovered them, exposed them, and ruined them. He, Sennacherib, discovered the covering of Judah. Their defenses were those, those walled cities. And thou, jumping back, thou, second person, jumping back to the Jews, thou didst look in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. If you were to read the Bible, enough to know the words and terminology there, the house of the forest of Lebanon is, something, is a house that Solomon had built in Jerusalem, and it was the armory. It was the armory. That's where he hung his shields. And that's where Hezekiah had put all the shields and the darts that he had made in abundance. If you're familiar with this whole transaction. And so while Sennacherib saw the first line of defense and took it out of the way and exposed its weaknesses, being the walled cities of Judah, the Jews had looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. Are we going to have enough darts and shields to protect ourselves? Ye have seen also the breaches of the city of David. You have examined its walls like you have never looked at those walls before, and you are repairing every breach or opening that is going to give Sennacherib and his army an advantage, that they are many. You realize that your walls aren't that good when there's an army approaching. And ye gathered together the waters of the lower pool. You stopped up the waters to reach the lower pool. Are you familiar with all this from Kings and Chronicles? I'm not going to take the time to go there. You should know this already. They stopped up the waters to keep them in Jerusalem so that Assyria could not find water in the immediate vicinity of Jerusalem. And it's in Kings, it's in Chronicles, and it's right here. And we're going to cover it again when we get to Isaiah, where we'll have it in detail, chapters 36 through 38. Verse 10. And ye have numbered the houses of Jerusalem. They've taken a census. They want to know where every able-bodied man is, how much food to be allocated to each house, how many houses do we have to have, how many houses are weakening the wall, and the houses have ye broken down to fortify the wall. They have everyone housed, but they have broken down houses in order to make sure they can get to the wall and repair it. Think of all the efforts that they are making for protection. This is what the Lord wants you to see. Wow, they're really into this. That's what he wants you to see. Ye have made also a ditch between the two walls for the water of the old pool. So they've made a ditch up in Jerusalem to hold that water so that they'd have plenty and Assyria wouldn't. But, but, that inspired disjunctive. When something bad is going on in your life, where do you go? To LinkedIn? You lose your job so you put your trust in LinkedIn? And I speak to a few. You lose your job and you look to the one who gives jobs. Amen. Promotion doesn't come from the North, south, east, or west. Well, it comes from the north, but it doesn't come from the southeast or west. Sorry. That's Psalm 75, 6 and 7. Right. I could get you... Okay. I feel bad. And once in a while, it's good for a pastor to feel bad to humble him. Psalm 75, I'll read it to you. For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. So when you have... A job problem, go to the Lord. 
There's these other things that you can do, but go to the Lord first and most. When you have a health problem, don't worry about your research online about your health problem. You're never going to know as much as you need to know. Go to the Lord first, then do some research. Always let the Lord be the first and the most. And and that's that's what He's teaching us right now. That's what He's teaching us. No matter what kind of a problem you get into in your life, if it's a relational problem, don't, don't try to think of gifts and all the different things that you can do. Go to the Lord first. Go to the Lord. And so that's the lesson right here, and it's terrible. Look, look at that but in verse 11. But ye have not looked unto the maker thereof. Who made Jerusalem? God did. Neither had respect unto him that fashioned it long ago. Who laid out that mountain and its strengths and its water flow and where the walls were under Melchizedek, under the Jebusites, under David. This is all the way to Hezekiah, 300 years after David. Who did all that? The Lord did. So who should you go ask? The, the city fathers? Should you be down at City Hall asking to see the blueprints for the city of Jerusalem? Or should you be on your knees asking God to deliver the city? It's such a good lesson for us. And it's stuck right here in Isaiah 22. There's one place to go first and most. And it is to the Lord. Amen. Verse 12. I read three verses. And in that day did the Lord God of hosts call to weeping, and to mourning, and to baldness, and to girding with sackcloth. And behold joy and gladness slaying oxen and killing sheep eating flesh and drinking wine let us eat and drink for tomorrow we shall die and it was revealed in mine ears by the lord of hosts surely this iniquity shall not be purged from you till ye die saith the lord god of hosts In that day, what day? The arrival of Sennacherib and the Assyrian army and all of its known cruelty and its power and its numbers and its chariots and its archers and its horsemen. In that day, when that came up around Jerusalem, the Lord of hosts call for fasting and praying in, under these terms, weeping, mourning, baldness, and to girding with sackcloth. The Lord had taught that throughout the Bible. You didn't have to have a special call. The Lord had taught it throughout the Bible when you're in trouble. If you'll repent and turn toward Jerusalem, I'll deliver you. Solomon had prayed that in his dedicatory prayer for that temple. I'll deliver you if you'll repent. When an army approaches, that's a call. It is time to repent. When something bad happens in the day of adversity, consider and examine yourself and repent. And so we have it here for us, this lesson. Do you see the lesson in verses 8 through 11? They've worried about the natural means of their defense instead of going to the Lord. In verses 5 through 7, we have it, the Lord brings trouble, and He brings treading down, and He brings perplexity. Those nations didn't come on their own accord. The Lord brought them, and the Lord didn't hinder them. The Lord blessed them and favored them to arrive in good order. Remember some of those verses we've already covered in Isaiah. That he is the, in charge of logistics of foreign armies. When foreign army chariots do not break down, God's in charge. You know, we've covered those verses. Okay, just remember all this. 
The Lord's in charge. What's happened? I'm, I'm going over the lessons right now. We have four lessons here in these verses. What's happened? Why is the city so different? You're not as happy as you used to be. Is it a problem with me? Or is it a problem with you? This is the Lord speaking. I hope, I hope the message is coming through to you from Isaiah 22. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture. So we have what's wrong, verses 1 through 4, 5 through 7, God's behind this, 8 through 11, why are you worrying about your means of protection and not going to the Lord, 12 through 14, when you should be fasting, why are you partying? Because they were fatalistic Epicureans. Do you know what Americans are? Fatalistic Epicureans. They do not look to God, they do not think about the future, and all they want to do is feast and rest and have a big party. But there's a God coming. They can't even see that God could come before the second coming of Jesus Christ and eliminate America from the scene. He's eliminated nations before. Rome turned into Italy, and that is a joke. Greece turned into Greece, and that's a joke. Unbelievable. And Egypt turned into Egypt. That's a joke. Egypt's been a base nation now for 2,000 years, 2,500 years, just like God said they would always be a base nation. America can be a base nation, and it should be. So what are we doing? Okay. Verse 12 is what God thinks we should do. Weep, mourn, take away everything pleasant to us, gird ourselves with sackcloth and pray and beg for mercy. But instead, the Jews in Jerusalem were just full of joy and not all of them. Hezekiah wasn't. You know, and if you read up there in the first three verses, not all of them were, but there was a segment in the city that was given over to Epicureanism and fatalism. Joy and gladness, slaying oxen, killing sheep, eating flesh, drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. They had no hope, no faith. They saw the army coming. It's all over. It's curtains for us. Let's enjoy life as long as we can. And that is America today, and that is many Christians today. They hear about a hell. They hear about a God that judges in this life. And they still just want to have a good time, make money, live in their house, play with their kids, plant a garden, cut their grass, get a new car, instead of humbling themselves, weeping, mourning, begging, crying, fasting, praying to have God's mercy in their lives. Lord, help change us. We live in a nation just like this. Lord, change us. Don't let us be like them. That fatalistic Fatalism, what's going to happen is going to happen. We can't stop it. Yes, we can stop it. And not with repairing walls, tearing down houses, and redirecting water. We can stop it by prayer and repentance. And we've believed that about our nation for 40 years, haven't we, brother? We have prayed that we can influence America by praying in this place for our nation. I contribute... I sign petitions. I contact offices. I just don't tell you about it. But I'll tell you what I do a whole lot more of, and you know it from this pulpit. We pray for America. Pray for America. Because we go there first and most. Because we go to God first and most for everything. Right, wife? First and most for everything. Thank you. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. 
I hope the words are self-explanatory to you. You know, I could go off and preach on Epicureanism and fatalism and ignorance like that verse 13 describes, and I think it would be a distraction. So I'm just going to move right into verse 14. It was revealed to mine ears by the Lord of hosts. Surely, surely, this iniquity shall not be purged from you till you die, saith the Lord God of hosts. That is a serious verse telling that city they had problems in that city. They were all messed up and were not enjoying life, but they hadn't turned to the right one because everything was there. Everything that was bad happening was from the Lord. They were making natural precautionary measures to defend themselves, but they weren't turning to Him. And they were fatalistically saying, it's over, so we might as well just enjoy life as long as we can. But the Lord, this is a word of wisdom. You know, Benny Hinn has words of wisdom sometimes. When he's got 20,000 in a coliseum someplace, he'll say, the Lord just told me that a kidney stone is being dissolved right now. The Lord just told me a kidney stone is being dissolved. He can't prove it. They can't prove it. You know, there's a, let's see, a crowd of 20,000. There's 500 in there that are hoping they're the one. And so they're all happy. And the big Kentucky Fried Chicken bucket came by just at that moment. And they pull out a wad of 20s and throw it in for Benny and his word of wisdom. This is a word of wisdom to Isaiah. I have a word of wisdom from the Lord. I'm trying to get your attention. A word of wisdom from the Lord. It was revealed in mine ears by the Lord of hosts. Surely this iniquity shall not be purged from you till you die. What should we learn? That we better go to the Lord first and most when we have a problem instead of looking to defend ourselves or protect ourselves. Right. Then we should never be fatalistic and give over to this Epicurean lifestyle of America. There is a whole spiritual way of living by faith and hope and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost that is not meat and drink. Romans 14, 17 teaches us that. Now I want to add one little P.S. to this here before we go into Shebna and Eliakim. For those of you that feel at times you're spiritually cold, you're spiritually distant from the Lord, he has deserted you. You are not enjoying the full fellowship with God that you once did. Do you know what the remedy is? It is this lesson of 12 through 14. The Lord God calls you to weeping, mourning, baldness, and girding with sackcloth. But instead, you are enjoying all the things that you can, as much as you can, to make up for the spiritual dryness in your life. I ask you to turn to James chapter 4 so that I can prove it from the New Testament as I attach this little P.S. to the fourth lesson about the army of the Assyrians surrounding Jerusalem. James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. Right, right. So there are times in our lives where spiritually 
we don't have the same zeal and love for the Lord that we did have, it's the same remedy. Get serious. Confess your sins. Fast and pray, and He'll lift you up. But instead, we go from one activity to the next. I'll work some extra hours. Let's go do this. Let's go there. Let's have these people, you know, let's do, on, on and on we go with all this noise clutter in our lives of fun and pleasure instead of doing what it just said right there in James chapter 4. And then, of course, in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. So there's a P.S. lesson for us. Verses 15 through 19. Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, Go, get thee unto this treasurer, even unto Shebna, which is over the house, and say, What hast thou here? And whom hast thou here? That thou hast hewed thee out a sepulcher here, as he that heweth him out a sepulcher on high, and that graveth an habitation for himself in a rock. Behold, the Lord will carry thee away with a mighty captivity, and will surely cover thee. He will surely violently turn and toss thee like a ball into a large country. There shalt thou die, and there the chariots of thy glory shall be the shame of thy Lord's house. And I will drive thee from thy station, and from thy state shall he pull thee down. Amen and amen. Shebna. Who in the world was Shebna? Well, we have a few references to him in the Bible. And the, it tells us right here that at one point in time he was the treasurer of Hezekiah and over the whole house of David. He was over the kingdom as its treasurer. He controlled the cash flow in and out. Shebna. It doesn't say very much about him, so we don't know very much. I'm just going to tell you some things. Some things are in the Bible. Some are speculative from little hints around him. For instance, when we get to Eliakim, down there in verse 20, it's going to say Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And you know, Eliakim. Eli, what does Eli stand for? Elohim, God. And the son of Hilkiah. What does Aya stand for? Jehovah. We have Jews that are named properly with a meaningful name. And Eliakim is one of them. Shebna. Ever find Shebna in the Bible? Shebna is some goofball name thought up by a mother that had no regard for God. Shebna. There's no father involved because he's probably a foreigner, probably put in office by Ahaz, endured by Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz. These are things Jewish tradition says that we can't prove from the Bible, but there is something seriously wrong with him. He had no conscience for the nation. He only had a conscience for himself. So he was, self, he was self-driven. All he cared about was himself. And we will meet people like that. All they care about is themselves. They don't do anything for anyone in the church. All they think about is their little family, which is worthless. Shebna was worthless. And God's going to throw him like a ball into a large country. He's going to turn and violently hurl him out of Jerusalem. Many things could be said. His name is only noise compared to Hezekiah. Hezekiah, strength of Jehovah. That ayah at the end is Jehovah. Strength of Jehovah. Eliakim. 
God shall establish, or God raised up. That'll come back to us in just a few minutes. It's beautiful. And so we have these verses here about a man named Shebna, who was the treasurer of Hezekiah's kingdom. Because Kings and Chronicles tells us that. And so does Isaiah 36 and 37, which we will get to again before we get out of the book of Isaiah. Thus saith the Lord God of hosts in verse 15, Go tell that treasurer these things. What hast thou here? And these are mocking questions in verse 16. Because where Isaiah was, was addressing Shebna and asking him about a monumental tomb he was making to himself. And everything in verse 16 is about his tomb that he's making for himself. You say, what about the word grave? He's cutting a tomb out of a rock, just like was formed for the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth for his short stay there. Matthew 27 and verse 60. Carved out of rock. That's as good as you can get for a tomb to be carved out of rock. What hast thou here? What are you building for yourself? Who do you have authorizing this? Who's approved this? See, kings didn't build their monuments for their memories while they were living. It's what the nation would do for them when they were dead to indicate whether they were worthy of a monument or a mausoleum. When I say the word mausoleum, I mean buried. Because kings in the Bible, and you know this from reading the Bible, some kings were not, married, were not buried in the tombs of the kings, were they? They were tossed out in other places because they didn't deserve to be buried with David and the likes of David. What hast thou done? What are you doing hewing out a sepulcher here? See, here, that could either be in Jerusalem because he's a foreigner, or it's near the kings because he's not a king. As he that heweth him out a sepulcher on high, why are you trying to honor yourself as being some important dignitary? As one that graveth a habitation for himself in a rock, why are you doing it? Let another man's mouth praise thee. And you know when that happens the most? It's when we die. You say, well, how can you praise yourself when you're dead? Oh, easy. Ever seen some of the stones that men have asked for themselves? I'd like this, I'd like this red at my funeral. Are you kidding me? Unless it's all about him. It's all, it should be all about him. Okay, I hope you understand verse 16. This is about Shebna. Verse 17, Behold, the Lord will carry thee away with a mighty captivity and will surely cover thee. He's going to bury you ignominiously in some foreign land without any honors and no state funeral. Hope you can... Beautiful. Behold. The Lord puts down this man. He will surely violently turn and toss thee like a ball into a large country. Now that's unusual terminology. He's going he's gonna to turn from what you think has been blessing, that he's favoring your cause. See, the Jews believed that he was brought in by Ahaz. He was a foreigner. And he was the one behind all these preparations that were made for the city of Jerusalem. He was intensely behind it to gain Hezekiah's favor, while at the same time he was communicating with Sennacherib to defect. Just, he's doing something wrong that the Lord is real upset about, as you can tell. Now the Jewish tradition tells us that when Sennacherib, at the, at somewhere at the end, Shebna did defect to Sennacherib, who took him back to Nineveh, drilled two holes behind his Achilles tendon, and tied him to horses' tails, and drug him until he was dead. I like it. That's why I tell it to you. 
I don't know if it happened or not. Do you know what I know happened? I know this happened. He will carry thee away with a mighty captivity and will surely cover thee. You'll get buried ignominiously after you're a captive and he will surely violently turn and toss thee like a ball into a large country. There was no larger country than Assyria as an empire. There shalt thou die, and there the chariots of thy glory shall be the shame of thy Lord's house. The chariots that he had driven around Jerusalem, thinking that he was someone important, would be the shame of Hezekiah's house. Because that defector, that foreigner, that evil man Shebna had been demoted by Hezekiah through the Lord's leading by Isaiah and thrown out of the city and taken captive and killed in a faraway large country that was obvious the Lord's violent throwing of him out of Jerusalem. I will drive thee from thy station, his station, treasure, and over the house of the king, the kingdom, prime minister, not king, like a prime minister. And from thy state shall he pull thee down. Hezekiah pulled him down. Hezekiah demoted him from being treasurer before these worst things happened. You say, really? Why didn't the worst things just happen? Because sometimes God likes men to think about it. Can I give you some examples? Did he want Pharaoh to think about it before just dying? Could God have killed Pharaoh with that death angel while Pharaoh was in his bed the night that Pharaoh's oldest firstborn died? Could He didn't, because he wanted Pharaoh to think about it. How about Haman? Did Haman have an opportunity to think about it as he was leading Mordecai through the city streets of Shushan? Right? He got to think about it. Now, if you read the accounts of Shebna, he's only a scribe. He's a secretary. He's a secretary. And he goes out and Eliakim meets Rabshaki. And do you know what he's doing? Could you say that again? I love it. I'm not making fun of secretaries. It just is a demotion from being prime minister. And when you read about Shebna, you look up all the occurrences of Shebna. He was a treasure here in Isaiah 22. So we're getting inside information. And every, when you read about him next, and he goes out, when the army's actually there, and he goes out to meet the army as an envoy from Hezekiah, he's a scribe. He's just taking notes, taking dictation. Then this happened. You know this happened because it's in the word of the Lord. There's another man. Verses 20 through the end of the chapter. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant. Brethren, that's what you want to be. I love slavery. If I can be the Lord's slave, if I can be the Lord's servant, that's the kind I'm referring to. Look at that special word there. It shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Two great names. And I will clothe him with thy robe. Notice who's talking. Isaiah is speaking to Shebna. Shebna has to hear this firsthand from Isaiah. That hurts. That hurts bad when you're told that you're about to be demoted and who's going to be promoted over you. It hurts. I love it hurting. Shebna deserved it to hurt. If God said it was just, it's more than just to me. Oh, this is beautiful. 
I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. When you get thrown out and tossed like a ball into a large country and die an ignominious death there in shame, and your reputation is nothing but grief and shame, and the Lord covers you in, as a captive and buries you ignominiously, when that happens, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. He'll be the prime minister, and the key, he'll be the treasurer. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the issue, all vessels of small quantity, from the vessels of cups, even to all the vessels of flagons. Okay, what do those words mean? Before we hit the last verse, verse 21, every bit of the public and official role that Shebna had would be transferred to Eliakim. And he would become the, the father, the treasurer, the prime minister of Jerusalem and the house of Judah. Verse 22, I'm going to give him all the authority that you've had that belongs to the prime minister under King Hezekiah. Was Eliakim a member of David's family tree? We don't know. Does verse 22 sound like the book of Revelation? Chapter 1 and verse 18 and chapter 3. Yes, it does. Do we run and make this entirely about the Lord Jesus Christ? No, we do not. Because this man is known for his office under Hezekiah, and so was Shebna. We should look rather that the Old Testament used this terminology to describe the Lord Jesus Christ in absolute terms. Because Eliakim's authority with his key, and see, key's appropriate. When, when a dignitary visits even Greenville, we give him the keys to the city. It means it's a symbol of authority. Verse 22, the key of the house of David. Because that's what's being transferred from Shebna to Eliakim under the kingship and reign of Hezekiah. And he shall shut, none shall open, just meaning that's an expression. It's a beautiful expression. We love it in the book of Revelation. He's going to have authority over the kingdom of Israel. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. His father's house, within the, if, it's in the, if it's in David's family tree, 300 years later, then it's just part of David's family tree. But his father's house, Hilkiah's house, Hilkiah's family tree would benefit by this nail. And for the, this, this is a similitude. There's similitudes throughout here. This is a, a similitude. A man is driven like a nail into a sure place where, you, where it's going to be able to support a lot of weight. And it's a long nail. And they did this in homes. And they had things of value on display hanging from what we would call a wall hook or a nail. So it's not really too much of a similitude. But he's going to make Eliakim a nail in a sure place, you will be established in your office as prime minister under Hezekiah. And remember what his name means, Eliakim? God shall establish, or God shall raise up. It's just beautiful. Shebna's put down, Eliakim is raised up. 
and I will fasten him, he, because the Lord through Isaiah is speaking to Shebna, I will fasten him in a sure place like a nail, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. A man sitting on a throne is able to dole out goodies, and Eliakim is going to be able to dole out goodies to his family, to his father's family, which makes it an even bigger family tree. Let's get the details of it. Verse 24, And they shall hang upon him, that is, upon Eliakim. They, the family, the Hilkiah's family, shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house. Israel, Hezekiah, the princes, the government, is going to hang on Eliakim the glory, every bit of glory in Hilkiah's family will come through Eliakim. The offspring and the issue. It's a family tree. These words are about a family tree. The offspring and the issue of Hilkiah's family tree. All vessels, because they would hang vessels on these nails. Just like we hang pictures and clocks and things on nails. The similitude is, all vessels of small quantity, the little people, the ones that don't, aren't very important in Hilkiah's family tree, from the vessels of cups, even to all the vessels of flagons, you know, which is a jug. Uh, it could be gallons in the Bible because it was made of skins. But from little people in Hilkiah's family tree to big people in Hilkiah's family tree, Eliakim is going to be their nail and they're going to benefit because they're going to all be able to hang from his nail. And he'll be in a sure place. And the glory of his father's throne will be through Eliakim. And so Shebna's put, look at the terminology for Shebna's dismissal. Now that's a real firing. If, if you followed me, if you're following me, that's a real firing. And if you're following me, this is a tremendous promotion. And the Lord told Shebna through Isaiah, beginning with the words, what in the world are you building here? You don't need this. I'm going to throw you like a ball into a, a large country. I'm going to promote Eliakim over you, my servant. Do you want to be great in the sight of the Lord? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he'll exalt you in due time. Let's humble ourselves and be like Solomon. Let's humble ourselves and be like James 4, 8 through 10 just told us. Let's humble ourselves and be God's servant. All I want to do, Lord, is serve your kingdom. All I want to do, Lord, is serve your people. All I want to do is serve. Let me be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. I'll keep the door. I'll be there first. I'll leave last. I'll keep the door. That would be like David. That man is going to be great in the sight of God and men. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed. Shebna's nail. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed and be cut down and fall. And the burden that was upon it shall be cut off. Every one of all the friends and family and descendants and family tree of Shebna would be cut off and have no more sustenance from the government and the revenues of the nation of Judah. Why? For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Isaiah 22. Amen.